out of the way. Even though we're doing a big jump forward and a lot of stuff will have to happen between then and now, point is I just want to get that get that out of the way. Um, so last week, or not last week, it's been a couple weeks, but last time we talked about John Chrysostom and we talked about St. Jerome. And so pretty much with John Chrysostom, uh, what we saw was he was like the greatest preacher of that time. And he became the patriarch of Constantinople and uh, just had an amazing preaching career, but eventually ended up getting killed because he made the empress mad. Um, so John Chrysostom, we covered. We also covered St. Jerome. And his big thing was uh, he gave us the Latin Vulgate. And so uh, and he was a, uh, one of the few church fathers that actually knew Hebrew. Solid guy, right? Now we're moving to probably the most influential theologian of the ancient world, and that is Augustine, or Augustine of Hippo. His life dates are 354 to 430. He is considered the greatest theologian since the Apostle Paul. And it's not an exaggeration to say that he shapes uh, pretty much European Christianity for the next thousand years. I mean, think of a guy shaping a whole continent's really culture for a thousand years. That's Augustine. Now, he had one of the brightest and deepest and most powerful minds in the history of human thought. Um, he's left a lot of stuff of his for, for you to read. And when you read him, you're, you're, you might think you're a sophisticated 21st century, you know, I fly airplanes and all this kind of stuff. But when you read him, you realize this guy is, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's a sharper thinker than, than most people are today. And so we know a lot about him, and the reason we know a lot about him is he wrote an autobiography called Confessions. And if you ever read Confessions, it's a very, very, how do I put it? It's just a devotional book. You read it. I remember when I read it, I said, I'm going to read this book once a year for the rest of my life just because I get so much out of it. And then, of course, I haven't. But, uh, but even reading it that first time just impacted me so much. So we know a lot about him just because of what he tells us. And so what I'm going to do at first is I'm going to try to fly as fast as I can through his life. And then we'll get to his, uh, his main... Um, his works, and then the main controversy that he got caught up in. And he got caught up in a lot of controversies. There's three big ones, but I'm mainly going to focus on one of them. But let me fly by Augustine's life as fast as I can. He was born in Tagaste in uh, North Africa in 354. It would be in modern-day Libya. The people that originally lived there are called the Berbers, and Augustine's mother, Monica, was a Berber. <laughs> so he named after Augustine's mom, right? So she was a Berber, but his father was a Roman, a Roman official of all things. And so Augustine was torn between two worlds, the Romans that ruled everything and they were the way of the future. But of course, you got his native Berbers, the North Africans. So he's a mix of Africa and Europe. And so his father's Roman Greco achievements and his mother's Christian faith, because she was a Christian, they competed for the young mind of Augustine. Um, and he was torn between the two. But as a young man, he really wanted little to do with his mom's religion. Uh, both parents wanted him to be successful in the Roman system. Even Monica's like, there's a more future in Rome than there is in Africa. So, yeah, they wanted him to, uh, to pretty much uh, just be very successful. Um, 
And, and if you think about it, even though they both wanted him to be a successful Roman, the fact is uh, both of them represented something different for him, paganism versus Christianity. And again, those two things are going to be battling for him. So Augustine will tell you in confessions that he had a restless heart for most of his young life. Um, his, his parents and, and his life will show that. So um, continuing with the, the basic narrative, his parents paid for his education in the town of Madura until they ran out of money. Just education was expensive. They didn't have public schools then, but they recognized their, their baby was brilliant. And so he needed to be taught by the best. And eventually they run out of money. He returns home at the age of 16. And during that time, he's not in school. He's doing pranks and mischief. And he really emphasizes in his confessions on this time where him and his buddies stole a bunch of pears from some guy's field. And he's like, why'd we do it? We didn't even want them. He's like, we did it just because we wanted to make the guy mad, and we thought it was funny. Now, when he becomes a Christian and he's older, he's like, man, that showcases sin in us. No reason to steal that guy's pears other than we just wanted to be jerks. And so there's something wrong with us as as humans. And so most of us might think, what a... A relatively minor event in somebody's life, the stealing of pears. Like, my moment was assault with the BB gun that landed me in juvenile hall, a lot more than pears, you know? That's what got a hold of me. But for Augustine, one thing that, that really shook him later was, yeah, why did we do that? Now, getting back to the 16-year-old prankster, there's going to be a neighbor in their town that had a lot of money. He knew Augustine was brilliant. He didn't want to see that potential go to waste. So he said, you know what? I will pay for this young man's education. We, we don't want this to go to waste. And so not only that, I'm going to send him to Carthage. That was the big city of North Africa, was Carthage. And boy, was this Good news to him. He's like, I'm going to be far away from my parents. I could do whatever the heck I want. And he did. He did. He indulged in every sin you could think a young or a teenage boy and growing into a young man was going to do all kinds of immorality. He doesn't shy away from the kind of stuff that he was doing. Now, at the same time he's sowing his wild oats, he is still excelling in his studies. He's surpassing all of his classmates. Um, as far as people in North Africa, I don't think anybody can match him. And, and I think he knew that, which, which makes it even worse when you are already cocky and you know that you're leagues beyond all of your peers. Um, so what he's going to do during this time, another thing, and all this is important for shaping him, right? He's going to establish a permanent relationship with a concubine. He doesn't marry her, but they have a long-term live-in relationship. She provides him with a son, um, and that son makes it to adulthood before that son dies of an illness. Um, and so, yeah, he kind of has a little unofficial family. Now, his mother didn't really respect this, this woman, but Augustine did love her. Um, but he saw no purpose in marrying her because, I, if I remember right, they're of different social classes and that would be a big no-no. Now, <clears throat> Augustine's dad, at some point before he dies, converts to Christianity. And so now both of his parents are Christians. It's like he was not expecting that. But it happened. And so, of course, his mom was happy about that. But Patrick dies. And so what does mom do? She moves to Carthage. And now she's back in his vicinity, hovering around him when he's trying to sow his wild oats. He doesn't necessarily want her there, but he knows it's a son's duty. So um, she's living near him. Um, 
But man, she found herself alienated from him because he, one, was living that immoral life, and two, he was embracing the pagan system of Manichaeism, which I explained to you guys many lessons ago. Tried to blend all sorts of religions from the Middle East and the Far East, and, um, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, but Augustine picked it for two reasons. One, it wasn't Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with it. He hated his mom's religion, probably because it was his mom's religion, right? And then number two, he could not get his head around the problem of evil. Like if there's this one good God that my mom talks about, why is there so much evil in the world? Manichaeism gave an answer that it doesn't work but he was willing to accept it for a while. Their answer was God can't stop evil because there's not just one God. There's uh, just like you have the all powerful, well, not all powerful, you have the powerful good God, you have an equal but powerful evil God. And that these two forces, kind of like in you know Star Wars, the dark side and the light side are always in constant opposition to each other. The only difference is in, in Star Wars, they're impersonal, the light side and dark side, whereas in Manichaeism, these are personal deities, but they're equal. None will ever gain a, a true foothold over the other. So there's always going to be evil. It's built into the system. You can't do anything about it. Augustine thought that answer was okay for a while, but even, even that one's eventually going to bug him and he's going to say, ah, it doesn't work. But again, his mom is kind of distant from him, even though she's close in terms of geography, mainly because he's just living in every way that will offend her. And against his mother's wishes, he then says, you know what? I've got my education. I'm going to move to Rome. I'm going to strike it big in the heart of the empire. Um, I'm going to be somebody in Rome. Because that was his goal, to get as far away from his African heritage as he could and to succeed among the Romans. And when he goes to Rome, he's going to have some success there. He's going to be a teacher of rhetoric in the city of Milan, which is a very important city in Rome. So he did reach a high station, but he wasn't anywhere near the highest um, in Rome, only because native-born Italians are always going to get the, the priority. Now, I do want to say something uh, about that. In America, and even modern times in general, we think in terms of race, skin color, and things like that. They didn't care about that then. So it wasn't that he was half African, where they're saying, okay, he's half Berber, you know, he's inferior to us. No, what they valued was language. How well can you speak Latin? And I don't care who you are, if you're born in North Africa, even if Latin is spoken by everybody, you're going to have an accent that's a little different than what people say in Rome or the way they speak in Rome or Italy. And because of that, the people in Rome are always going to see him as second class because he can't quite say his words like the native-borns would. And so language, linguistics, things like that is what really separated people back, uh, back then. So, so pretty much he becomes a teacher of rhetoric in an important city, but he never becomes the big shot that he was hoping to be. Um, and it's going to be during this time that he finally breaks with Manichaeism because he was too smart for it. You know, for the longest time, he started asking questions. Wait, this contradicts this. This doesn't make any sense. And the Manichaeans kept saying, well, wait until this. I can't remember his name, but they, they kept saying, wait until this one Manichaean comes. He will explain all things to you. Your questions are good. You're a deep thinker. We can't answer you. But this.
this guy. He's got all the wisdom of, of, of Manny. He will be able to answer it. And then, so Augustine's holding on to this faith that he knows has problems because he expects this guy's going to come and set him straight. And when he finally met that guy, he's like, this is that guy. He was a halfwit. Augustine was like 10 times smarter than the guy and said, you based or, or you hung your whole hopes of this faith on this moron? All right, I'm out. And so then he leaves Manichaeism and he finds Neoplatonism. And remember, I, I introduced these concepts in previous lessons. So Neoplatonism is, is like, it took Platonism. Gosh, I, I don't want to, if I have to explain it all again, we won't finish. I'll give the fast explanation. Remember, Plato says uh, matter is bad, spirit is good, that um, you have this, this world of um, forms or ideas that are eternal and immaterial and spiritual. And then you had this demiurge that took those ideas and turned them into matter. Okay, but all these material versions are flawed. Well, again, it's not a very sophisticated story. So people wanted to, to add to it. Eventually, you get a guy named Plotinus who says, here's how it went down. You have this one ultimate God. We'll call him the ineffable one. And he loved himself so much that he just emanated out of himself and out from him came something nearly equal to him called the noose, which is the mind. And all these ideas, all these forms existed in this noose. Well, then the noose imitates the ineffable one and emanates out from himself and you have the world soul. And then the world soul does the same thing. But when he does it, all those ideas or forms in, in the mind of the noose now become material things in the real world. That's Neoplatonism. And it, as you can see, some Christians of that time that want to be accepted by the intelligentsia will start to say that's compatible with Christianity. The Father's the ineffable one, the Son is the noose, and the Holy Spirit is the world soul. And it doesn't necessarily work. It doesn't, but it does for some people like Augustine serve as a bridge to Christianity because he rejects Neoplatonism. He rejects this idea of a God made out of matter for a pure spiritual God, a God that is three in one in a sense. Um, and so he's almost there, but he's not there yet. And he liked their problem or their solution to the problem of evil. You may have heard that Augustine gave the famous answer that evil doesn't exist as a thing. It's instead the privation of good. So for example, cold does not scientifically exist. We have a word for cold, but all cold is, is the absence of heat. Heat is the thing that exists, right? Um, and so when you have less heat, so think about how we describe temperature. We'll say it's 32 degrees Fahrenheit. What we're saying is it's 32 degrees Fahrenheit hot. Okay. But what that means for us is it's freezing. It's cold. So cold is just the, the absence of heat. What Augustine would say is that evil is the privation or absence of good. Good is what is real, but evil is when you move away from that in the opposite direction. It's not a real thing in and of itself, but it's a, um, but we, we feel it. We can measure it because of its distance from good. And the Neoplatonists, that was their answer. And Augustine took that from them and he kept that answer. And a lot of Christian apologists still use that answer today. I don't like that answer, but a lot of, uh, a lot of sound Christians do. But anyhow, so intellectually, as I was saying, Neoplatonism is going to be a bit of a bridge for him um, as he's eventually one day going to move um, 
to Christianity, but he's not there yet. At this point, he still saw just little value in Christian scriptures. He had read the Old Testament. He just didn't like God. Um, he, he didn't. And <clears throat> so he wasn't interested in Christianity until he heard about the man Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. And remember, he was the most famous bishop in the Western Empire at that time. He stood his ground against Emperor Theodosius and won, if you remember that. And so, I mean, the bishop more powerful than the emperor. I mean, that's, that's huge. And so Augustine's like, okay, I've heard good things about this guy. I'm a teacher of rhetoric. I hear this guy's a great speaker. Let me go hear him. And he hears him, and he loved his preaching. He's like, okay, this Ambrose, if, if what he is speaking, if that's Christianity, I could buy that. Now, remember, Ambrose and a lot of these guys were allegorists. And so they used allegory to interpret the Old Testament to make it match Greek philosophy. Again, I would say that's, that's not the way to do it. But, but at that time, a lot of theologians, okay, the Alexandrians especially, now the Antiochians were like, no, but this is what Ambrose was doing. And so with allegory, now Augustine in his head could overcome the parts of the Bible that offended his Roman Greco think mindset, right? His way of thinking. And so now he was able to take the culture of Rome, of his father, and marry it to the faith of his mother. And he could say, all right, I'm no longer just a Neoplatonist. I think I could buy into this Christianity stuff. But it was only intellectual. He didn't put his heart into it. He didn't give himself to Christ. He hadn't yet converted. And so his soul was still tormented. And a lot of stuff was happening to him at this time. His mother, and again, I know we, we like to romanticize the past and because his mother was the Christian and she held on so long to the end, you know, being that influence and her son finally came around and that's all true. But she's a human like the rest of us. And she had her jerk moments. And one jerk moment was she forced him to send that concubine that he'd been with for like 20 years away. And in that time and culture, nobody's going to marry her. That, that condemned her to a life of poverty. We have no idea what happened to that woman. And it was just because his mom didn't approve of that relationship. And then she, uh, she tries to get him to marry somebody more appropriate for his, his station in life. But that's eventually not going to happen. And as he's waiting for her to come of age, because she was too young, still he starts hooking up with, with other women. He's still committing these same kinds of sins. And it's, it's tormenting him. It, it really is. Because he's, he's meeting Christians. He's reading now Christian literature. And he's seeing people who live these exemplary moral lives. And he's like, why can't I? I now mentally uh, agree with what these guys say, but my sins are so great. And so he keeps growing more and more restless. And then you may have heard the story. He was at a friend's place and, and in the garden courtyard of that friend's place. He's crying. Uh, he's, he doesn't know what to do because of his, just the conflict in his heart over his immorality. And then he hears a little kid's voice saying, Tolo lege, tole lege, you know, which means take up and read. He took it as a sign from God, walked back into the house, and the first thing he saw was a scroll of the book of Romans, opened it up and did this kind of thing and landed on a spot. And it just happened to be in Romans 13 where God, where Paul, where God through Paul says, you know, stop all these sins, the orgies, the carousing, the, all this stuff, stop it, right? And, and it just broke him. And at that moment, he said he felt the power of God just like the old heart was taken out, the new heart was put in, and he was a different man. 
just a different man in that moment. That is when, when the faith became real for him. Uh, so, tole, tole lege. Uh, that's take up and read. We used to have a, um, not a book club, but we'd have a book of the month that we used to, you know, put on display here for people to buy and say, hey, if we all read it together, and we're thinking of naming it Tole, tole Lege, you know, take up and read, you know. And yeah, caught on for like a couple weeks and then realized we're doing all this work for nothing because nobody's reading these anymore. But anyhow, so... Um, so Augustine, like the rest of us, when he becomes a Christian, it's not like right away he's got the Christian life down. So at first he's thinking of the Christian life like a scholar. Oh, my whole job is to not be anywhere near people, and I'll just be with my books writing academic subjects that will benefit the church. I don't have to be part of the church. I don't have to be part of a community. He didn't understand the church. He didn't understand its mission. Um, so he just thought, no, it's Christian leisure. I'm going to have my little retirement home. I'm going to write, I'm going to make money, I'm going to be comfortable, and that's it. He was still thinking like a philosopher. But eventually, he comes to understand his error, and he wants to join the church of Christ, and he, uh, he has Ambrose baptize him. So he gets baptized by Ambrose in 387, and uh, his mother can now die in peace because... Her baby boy, who was crazy for all these years and given her heart attacks and headaches, finally came around and was now officially part of the Lord's church. Now, his mom dies after this, but she could die a happy woman. Augustine sees no life for him in Italy, so he goes back to Africa. You know, he might be considered average in Italy. And by the way, I think he was probably smarter than all those guys. He just would never get a hearing because of his accent. So he could go back to Africa and be a big shot. It's that simple. Nobody will be able to match him there. Because it's weird. He's not Roman enough to be fully respected in Rome at that time. But he's more than enough Roman for the Africans to say, wow, this is the man. You know, it's kind of like uh, sometimes in, in our society, we, we look at the sophistication of the way the British speak. Oh, you know, you only went to Harvard, I went to Oxford, you know. And if you go to Oxford, well, then you're, you're really cream of the crop. Well, if somebody from Oxford then comes and is walking around in the States, like, get out of here, Harvard boy, I'm following the Cambridge and the Oxford guy. It was very much like that. By him going back to Africa, he'd have that kind of, that kind of status. And so he goes back to his hometown. He starts writing. He writes against uh, some of the, the heretics, first against the Manichaeism. He was a, a Manichae for so long, he could tell you how stupid it was, and he did a really good job writing against it. And then he's not arguing for Neoplatonism. He's arguing for Christian Platonism. And so he's going to write in favor of that. Now, what he's going to do at first, because he has no desire to be a leader, he just wants to be a thinker. So part of it is he wants to dedicate himself more to God and to be a better thinker. So he becomes a monk and lives a monastic lifestyle in his hometown of Tagaste. And um, he's thinking that will be how he lives out the rest of his days. And while he's a monk, he writes all these things. These things he's, he writes are making him famous because people all over are reading them like, who is this guy? He's brilliant. Even Jerome starts reading his stuff. And at first he's like, ah, who is this guy? And then later he reads some of the stuff. He's like, all right, I like this guy. And Jerome didn't like anybody. He was so cocky because he was so smart. But eventually he starts looking at Augustine like, okay, 
I've met my equal. <laughs> Some of these guys were too prideful to be good Christian leaders. But anyhow, um, he starts gaining fame uh, by what he's writing. Now, his son is going to die during this time. He's a young adult. I, I can't remember exactly what he got sick of. But after his son dies, there's really nothing that that binds Augustine to any one place. So there's going to be a neighboring town um, that's, that's not far that's going to ask, yeah, Hippo, of course, duh, Hippo. That's why we call him Augustine of Hippo. And you're going to have a public functionary of Hippo ask Augustine to come there and set up a monastery there like he did in his own hometown. And so he's like, yeah, I guess I could do that. And so then he shows up and you have this really old bishop. That's the bishop of Hippo. His name's Valerius. And he says, Augustine, I don't want you to just be a, a monk. You need to be a presbyter, a priest. You're, you're perfectly suited to deal with the problems we're dealing with in Hippo. Hippo was a little bigger than Augustine's hometown. And there's a couple, there's two big problems in Hippo. Manichaeism, who better than Augustine to dismantle that, and Donatism. And I guess I need to go back and explain the background of, of Donatism one more time. Remember, the, the Donatists were those who broke away from the regular church because they believed the regular church was soft on morals. When you had the last major persecution, the Christians that denied the faith, when they wanted to come back, the Donatists said they should never be allowed to come back. But the church's position was, well, if they repent, they could come back. And so the Donatists said, you guys aren't pure. You don't take the church seriously. The church needs to be pure. You have too much worldliness in your church. And so they pulled away. And they believed then all the sacraments that were done by the regular church don't count because God only accepts baptism and the Lord's Supper and stuff like that when it's officiated by those who are pure. And so the Donatists were probably more numerous in North Africa than the regular church. And you have to understand that it was also kind of an ethnic rebellion against Rome. The regular church was seen as Roman, where the Donatist movement was like the majority of Berbers were holding to that. So they kind of saw the regular church as Roman imperialism and Donatism almost as like we have our own nationalistic version of this. Well, that becomes a problem for unity in the church. And so Augustine is, again, perfectly suited to deal with this because he's half Roman and half African. That's why I really like the book by Justo Gonzalez, Augustine the Mestizo. He takes that concept and says, this is why Augustine became so big, because he had his foot and his identity, in a sense, like who he was, everything that shaped him was in two worlds equally, to where he was able to then set the path for a thousand years into a different world, medieval Europe, um, which was distinct from Rome, distinct from Africa, but he definitely paved the way for that. So anyhow... He's a priest there. He's doing a great job. His role was so important. He was so good at what he did. And the Bishop Valerius is like, Augustine, I know I'm the bishop, but you should be the bishop. But I'm not dead yet. And you can't be bishop till I'm dead, but maybe we could both be bishop at the same time. And the church is like, that's illegal. You could only have one bishop. But they all liked Augustine so much, they're like, all right, we're going to make this one exception right now, only now. Two men could be Bishop of Hippo. And so he becomes co-bishop with Valerius. But remember, Valerius was old, so within one year he dies. And now Augustine is the Bishop of Hippo, and he's going to serve this position for a very long time. 
46 years. And again, you look at the most effective pastors in history, they do not follow the American model of moving from church to bigger church to even bigger church to biggest church. No, they do what like John Piper and John MacArthur and Martin Lloyd-Jones and all those guys do. They stay at one church for 40, 50 years and pour themselves into that. Augustine did the same thing. We still read about him. The people who might pastor churches of 10,000 now, nobody's going to know who they are even 50 years from now. But we're still talking about Augustine, right? Faithful ministry, God rewards. Now, Augustine, he serves 46 years. He dies in the year 430 while Hippo was under siege by a bunch of invading Goths. And um, it's crazy. Like the Goths sacked Rome. Um, Rome wasn't, hadn't fully fallen yet, but they sacked it once by this point, And they decided to even push into Rome's African communities. So these Goths, which were like Germanic, crossed the Mediterranean and even attacked North Africa. And while that happened, while Augustine's uh, city was being besieged, he died. Um, and somebody preserved his writings and got them out of there so that the Goths uh, could not destroy them. But anyhow, or no, it was the Vandals, which they were Gothic, but we call them specifically the Vandals. They were the one, not that they vandalized, they were just called Vandals. Um, and they were the ones that, uh, that did that. So let's talk a little bit about him as a bishop, okay? We went from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. Now let's talk about him as a bishop. He was a great pastor. He was a trainer of pastors. In fact, one of my favorite books he wrote, it's this little book, on Christian teaching is what it's called. And he pretty much lays out, this is how you teach people. And this is how you teach leaders. This is how you train up pastors. And I'm reading it. I'm like, man, you could read this today. And this, this would help. I, I think a seminary should make everybody read it. 1,600 years later, still has some good stuff in it. Um, he, he was just busy, right? And the thing is, he, was, he became so popular, people would come to him for like civil decisions. Yeah, we don't want to go to a judge. We'll do what Augustine says. And so he definitely had a good reputation. Um, he was wise politically, pastorally. Um, much of his writing, though, and what survives to us is dedicated to controversy, and people like controversy, right? That's why when a car accident happens, you don't speed up so you don't see it. Everybody slows down like, you know, they just want to look at every dumb detail. Same thing when controversies are happening. People want to know what's, what's going on and, and Pelagianism. And I'll talk about Pelagianism um, the most, but let me go through these other ones kind of quickly. Um, in his disputes with the Donatists, he articulated the argument that really became um, the position of the church for the whole Middle Ages. And it's still technically the position of the Catholic Church today. What he said is it doesn't depend on who does the sacrament. Okay, you could have uh, uh, an immoral person baptize you, but because that person's immoral, it doesn't make the baptism ineffective. What makes it effective is that it is done within the institution of the church in obedience to the command of Christ. It's the command of Christ that gives it any operative effect, not the person who's doing it. And then he says, Donatus, you got it all wrong when you're saying the church must be perfectly pure. Does not Jesus teach that there will be wheat and tares and the Lord sorts them out in the end? Right. And so from Augustine's mindset, he said their whole vision of the church isn't even biblical. There's going to be a church with impure people. And there's things that the Bible tells us we could do to to reduce that. But you're not going to have this perfectly pure church. And therefore, the sacraments don't depend on pure leaders. Uh, just as long as it comes from the church. 
the church that Jesus recognized, the church with the apostolic succession, which he would say, again, we don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Um, but, but from his standpoint, as long as it's from the church and it obeys the word, it's kosher. But if it's outside of the church, and the Donatists right now are outside of the church, then it doesn't count, even if your guys are more pure. You know, and so, so that's his point. And that is why by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation, you know, the Catholics are like, there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. You could have, believe in justification by faith alone. You could do all this stuff. But no, unless you're confessing to a priest, unless you're baptized by a priest or a bishop, unless you're doing penance prescribed by a, a priest or bishop, you have no salvation. The whole seed of that idea comes from Augustine. Okay, he's the one that really gives the medieval church that, and he gives it to them as his argument that defeats the Donatists. Now, at first, he was against the government using force against the Donatists, but then the Donatists tried to assassinate him, and then all of a sudden, well, they're unruly. Maybe the government should go after them. And once the government did go after them, well, then, um, and it worked, pretty much they started exiling their leaders, seizing their property. Really quickly, the Donatists all said, oh, yeah, we want to be part of the regular church. And then the controversy died down, and so Augustine is seen as victorious over the Donatists. Now, the next big thing that I want to talk about really quickly is the city of God. Um, man, who turned this off? Oh, nobody did. It's just not working. Okay, that's why it's hot in here. Sorry. Um, it just means I'll talk faster. So, strange. But anyway, that'll blow out cold air. So, um, so, when it comes to his most famous work, you've probably heard of the city of God. And the city of God is his work against paganism. So not only does he have to deal with in-house disputes like Donatists, but paganism. And paganism, the same kind of arguments keep coming up. You end up with, you know, Rome getting sacked by the Vandals um, in, in the early 5th century. You end up with um, natural disasters, and the pagans always say it's because of the Christians. We abandoned the original gods, blah, 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 blah. Augustine is going to make, like, the just ultimate argument. I mean, City of God is a book this thick in our modern small print. I don't know how many scrolls that took with handwriting. Um, back then, or, you know, they were probably using codexes at that point. That thing had to be long, really long. But pretty much what, what, what he says is he says, listen, he, he works out an entire theory of history. And the first thing he does is he shows just how Roman he is. He knows their pagan Roman beliefs and their pagan Roman history as well as they do. And he pinpoints all the absurdities of it. You're judging us, but let's just take your religion seriously for a second. And man, he pulls no punches. Like you read it, they had to feel really dumb um, by the time he was done with them. They had to feel really, really foolish because, I mean, he just, he just opens up on them, right? And then after he shows with their own standards that their religion is just absolutely absurd, he then says, now let me show you from Genesis to Revelation how we have a story that makes sense of everything in the world. And he pushes it forward and gives a Christian theory of history that was far superior 
to anything that the pagans ever, ever produced. That is why this book is still talked about today, still read about. You, you could lose count of how many PhD dissertations are being written on this book by both believer and unbeliever alike. Um, most people read it and respect it and respect the brilliance of it, right? And, uh, and, and he really says, look, ultimately history comes down to um, two cities side by side, the city of man, uh, in the city of God. And the people who belonged to the city of God were pilgrims in the city of man. City of man a lot of times hates us, but at the same time we serve and we be good citizens of the city of man. We seek its welfare, but we never make that city our city because we know we have an eternal city that's coming when Jesus returns. And so we live for that city, but we benefit uh, the city of man right now and really just gives, a, a again, a good um, view of history. And I think that if, if you go back to the very first lecture I did, I talked about Christian views of church history. This is going to displace the imperial theology of Eusebius, that all of history was meant to get us to Constantine so that Constantine could get us a Roman Empire that's Christian. The Roman Empire is falling. And Augustine's point is that's all baloney. The fact is, before there was Rome, there was Greece. Before there was Greece, there was Persia. Before there was Persia, there was Babylon. Before Babylon, it was Egypt. There's always a Rome, and it always falls. And even if one on the surface becomes Christian, it's still the city of man because Christ hasn't returned yet. Because a lot of people, when Rome, was being, when Rome was being sacked, they were saying, this must be the end of the world. The kingdom of God is falling. He's like, wait, 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 wait. You think Rome's the kingdom of God? No, no, the kingdom of God transcends this world. And so this gave Christians a theology, one, that doesn't tie church and state together like it was being tied together, which is great. And it gives Christians a view of history and the church that can survive from empire to empire to empire to empire and so forth. That's why City of God is just so, so phenomenal of a book. Now, the big controversy, Pelagianism. Um, you may have heard of Pelagius, you may not have, but by the end of this, you'll know who he is and why this was a big controversy. Of all of Augustine's controversies, probably the most important for the church was the one with Pelagius. And the reason I say that is the issues keep coming up again and again, but under different names. And we know a lot about it because Augustine left us a lot of writings about the Pelagians, and so did Jerome. And, uh, and pretty much... He articulated his most famous contribution to Christianity in the context of this debate. How many of you have ever heard of the doctrine of original sin? Augustine's the one who really gives us that. I mean, I think it's biblical, but he's the one who puts it together and explains it well. He does it in the context of this debate. So let me talk a little bit about Pelagius for a second so we know the people we're dealing with. He was a monk from England who around the year 400 decided to travel the empire. Eventually, he comes in contact with the teachings of Augustine when he's traveling in North Africa. And then he comes to the Holy Land, where he comes in contact with Jerome's teachings, because that's where Jerome was. And Jerome and Augustine were teaching the same things, independently of each other, but Augustine's were the most popular. Now, he did not like these men, and he did not like the teachings of these men, because he believed it led to immorality. Now, one reason he's going to believe that is in his personal life, he was a very moral man. He didn't have the big sins that Augustine had. Um, 
And so when he looks at Augustine's theology, he says this is going to encourage people to live very sinful lives and then blame God for it or blame their nature for it or, or whatever it might be. And so pretty much um, the thing that, well, the thing that starts the controversy is actually going to be a little later. But what starts it in Pelagius' mind, what gets him riled up is a prayer that Augustine wrote. A very simple prayer. Augustine said, God, command what you will, but give what you command. And it became popular. And a lot of people repeated this prayer. And, and it's, it's real simple. God, command what you will, but give what you command. Meaning, give me the ability to do what you command. Because I can't do it on my own. I'm a sinner. But if you give me the ability, I could do it. So command what you will. I want your commands. Because I want to please you. But I need your power to be able to do it. Pelagius hated this. He said, no, no, no. If God commands it, then on our own power, we should be able to do it. Otherwise, that's unfair. And if you're depending on God to give you the ability to obey, you could then just disobey and say, well, God must not have given me the ability. must be God's fault. That's what Pelagius thought this would lead to. And so he was very upset with this. Uh, He said that God does not run our lives. He does not dictate how we must act. We actually have a libertarian free will. It is not restrained or constrained by God at all. He gives us the perfect freedom to obey or rebel against his moral commands. Now, there's a lot of people today who would even say that. I think it's error, uh, but it's not heresy. Okay, that's not the heresy. But I would say it's error because it doesn't take into account the biblical doctrine of inability or our sin nature. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit because Augustine's going to make that argument. Where the heresy comes from is Pelagius takes it to the next level to justify this statement. And he asserts that each person gets to decide whether they're going to be a sinner or righteous. In other words, Pelagius will make very clear that it is possible for a human being to be born and never sin even one time in their whole life and therefore not need Christ's atonement, that they could actually earn heaven and be a perfect man just like Jesus was a perfect man. So in that sense, Jesus is the example. Any of us could do it, but for those of us who fail to do it, good thing he died for us because then that will, will take care of our our failure, but, but you have the full ability to, to believe and repent and all that kind of stuff. Now, one reason, and also just to state this real quickly, um, he says you alone are responsible for every sin you do because there always has to be a choice to sin. And we would agree that you're responsible for every sin, but there's more nuance to this word choice than Pelagius would give. Now, again, one reason Pelagius thought this way was because um, he lived a good life. He didn't have the hard sins. Um, Very few people lived as moral of a life as Pelagius. And there wasn't a time in his life where he could remember not believing in Jesus. Where Augustine had this crazy life and stealing pears. And that was like small for some of the stuff he did. Um, And then he has this traumatic conversion. And so... um, so very two different guys with two different life experiences, which in some sense explains um, why they're approaching this differently. But again, it doesn't mean they both have equally valid approaches. One is far more scriptural than the other. Augustine argued that, listen, we have a sinful nature. We live in a world that is filled with sin that tempts us. And there's a devil and he's got demons. These things influence our choices in life. 
Okay, so to act like it's just like you're a blank slate and there's nothing pulling you in any way other than your choice. He's like, that's just not true. There are other things pulling on us. Now, Pelagius is going to write against this, and he writes a work called Of Nature and on Free Will. And he's like, no, we're neutral. We have a libertarian free will. Um, But, you know, one thing that I will say is even though he writes this, he will not directly confront Augustine or Jerome because he didn't like arguing. He was a gentle British uh, monk. He didn't like fighting people. He didn't like the controversy. And so um, he writes this. It's kind of like it's kind of like in Twitter when you subtweet someone or, or no. No, when you, yeah, it's when you subtweet. And you might not know what that is. A quote tweet is when you're looking for a fight. You find somebody's tweet, you share it, and then you write something on top where you're disagreeing with it, and you're inviting the fight, right? A subtweet is where you're a little wuss, and you don't do that. You see the person's post, and then you change the words a little differently, and you don't name them, but you totally donk on what they're saying so that they can't see it and can't directly interact with you. Okay, he was a subtweeter rather than a quote tweeter. He wanted to, uh, to avoid controversy, but his student Celestius was a fighter. And so this guy is going to get excommunicated and declared as a heretic because of his student. If it was just Pelagius, he would have stayed under the radar. But his student's like, you know what? My master's too nice. I'm going to go to North Africa. I'm going to tell these guys how stupid they are. And so that's exactly what he does. And he was eloquent. He was analytic. He loved to tear apart theology. So he looks for the fight and he begins proclaiming the teachings of Pelagius and declaring Pelagius to be uh, superior to Augustine and, and Jerome. And again, Pelagius is like, oh man, this isn't what he was about. He only cared about living practically, but Celestus was about the fight. So he quote tweets and quote tweets and puts clown emojis, all that. That is Celestius, right? And so people probably would have tolerated Pelagius's position because there are guys like Celestius, you know, in, in the world. They probably would have tolerated it. But Pelagius attacked infant baptism. And the irony here is he's right in being against infant baptism, But that's going to be the one thing that gets him in trouble. Now, he's right being against infant baptism, but his reason for opposing infant baptism um, is going to be mostly wrong. Okay, so Augustine's going to say, here's why we need infant baptism. There's original sin. We're all sinners in Adam. And so even though that baby's not old enough to make decisions... This is why we have the sacrament of baptism to wash away sins. Let's wash away the sin of Adam in in that baby. And again, Augustine's right about original sin, but he's wrong about baptism. Pelagius says, well, one, you don't need to baptize babies because that's not in the scriptures. 100% right on that. But he says, also, you don't need to baptize babies because there's no such thing as original sin. That's where he's a heretic. He says there's no original sin. He says we don't even have a sin nature. Augustine's wrong on that as well. Um, And so because there's no original sin, because there's no sin nature, there's no need for infant baptism. And so this then leads to the Council of Carthage, which was in 412, where it's ecumenical, bishops show up from all over the place, and when they hear it all out, they're like, Pelagius and Celestis are heretics, and they're out. And Augustine's position wins the day. Now, I do want to talk a little bit more about these guys, right? And, and their position. See, Augustine's experience is, I was terrible. I was evil. 
but God's grace, he transformed me into a saint by his grace. Pelagius says, I've always been a believer. What are you talking about transformations? Now, of course, when you read the scriptures, it talks about transformations. And we see transformations with Paul. So you could tell Pelagius, both men relied on their experience to some extent, but Augustine interpreted his experience through scripture. Pelagius didn't. Pelagius would deny what scripture says if it goes against his experience. Augustine wouldn't do that. And that's why his position ends up being the right one. Because Augustine understood sin through what he did, he's, he's like, through his life, he's like, you know what? If God's going to save me, it's got to be God alone because I did not want to be saved. And so he held to divine monergism, which means alone, one. God alone saves him. Uh, but being a product of his time, Augustine m- merged this um, monergism with sacramentalism, that the church has sacram- sacraments and you can only get God's grace through those sacraments. That's where Augustine's wrong. He's right on monergism. He's wrong on sacramentalism. And the interesting thing is both the Protestant Reformation and the Catholics claim Augustine. And you want to know what's interesting? We say he's ours. They're like, no, he was ours first. He's both of ours. Augustine, the sacramentalist, is totally Catholic, but Augustine, the monergist, is totally Protestant. And so Augustine is a very complicated man, and he still confounds us to this day with his Augustinianism, right? Now, Augustine correctly understood from Scripture that we do carry original sin from Adam, okay? That is a problem, Um, And so he believed, again, as I said, baptism has the sacramental power, so therefore babies should get baptized. Pelagius was right that that was wrong, okay, but he was wrong on the whole original sin. Now, even though this was a debate about infant baptism, ultimately this becomes a debate about anthropology. Anthropology just means the study of man. It was first a Christian field of study. What does the Bible say about man? Anthropology was always a Christian study. Then in the 1800s, it was broken away from that and became a a secular field. And so don't confuse the two, but um, both have a a theory of man, right? And both Augustine and Pelagius claimed to believe in the Bible. So which one's anthropology was more biblical? Well, each man's position begins with the nature of Adam and what they say took place in the garden. Pelagius said that Adam was created innocent with a free will, but he was mortal. He would have died anyway. Augustine's like, no, Adam was created innocent with a free will. I agree with you on that, but he was immortal. He would have never died. Death is a consequence of sin. Now, Pelagius is saying, no, death is natural. It would happen anyway. Well, come on. I mean, Romans chapter 5 makes it clear. Death entered the world through sin. So the question is, what would have, would have Adam died? If he never sinned, the scriptures make it clear, no. But Pelagius says, yes, Adam still would have died. Well, what about Christ? Would have Christ died if he was never crucified for our sin? I'm not going to get us into that. That is a Christological question that we play around with in systematic theology. But I'll tell you, Pelagius' answer was yes. And Augustine's answer, I think, was no. But, but really, it's going to be the issue of the fall that's going to place these men in the greatest contrast with each other. Each man's position... Oh, I already did that one. Um, so, the fall. Their theology of the fall. Pelagius said that the fall of man only affected, affected Adam. It did not affect anyone else. He said physical death would have happened anyway... It only, Adam's fall only brought spiritual death, and it only brought it to Adam himself. 
This is why, and by the way, Pelagius argued this because he needed physical death to be natural. If his position was, you're born innocent and you could go your whole life without ever sinning, then the question is, well, then why, you, why, why would you die? His answer is death was natural, right? The only thing that's unnatural is spiritual death. So he says the only thing that happened to Adam was spiritual death with the fall. Now, Augustine's like, no, it brought both physical and spiritual death, and it affected everybody who was born afterward. And if you look at Genesis 2 and 3 and Romans chapter 5 and Romans 6, the Bible favors Augustine, not Plagius. Um, Plagius' view is outside the bounds of Christianity. It it is heresy on, on these points. He believed that every individual is born into the world exactly like Adam was before the fall. When you were a baby, you were perfect. You had no sin in you. You were what John Locke will later say, uh, would later call a tabula rasa, a blank slate or a blank stone. And you define your own destiny. Nothing outside of yourself um, dictates what you will be or what choices you will make. You're innocent uh, and you have a free will. And you were supposed to be mortal, okay? Mortality is not part of the curse. All of that is heresy. And by the way, all of this comes back into Christianity in the 1600s with the Enlightenment philosophers like John Locke. He will claim to be a Christian, but he's going to reject huge portions of Scripture that disagree with his philosophical opinion, and he's going to hold a position like Pelagius. And just so that you understand, John Locke is the main thinker and architect of our republic. Our whole social contract theory of how government works and where it comes from comes from John Locke. Thomas Jefferson, in the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, plagiarized John Locke. Okay, And so... If you wonder where most Americans land, you ask them. You ask most Americans, are we born good or are we born bad? Well, we're obviously good, right? And and does anybody control your destiny? No, no, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I remember when I used to teach high school, I'd mess with my students on this. I'm like, so you have a total free will. They're like, yeah, nothing dictates my, uh, my destiny or whatever. I'm like, okay, so you could do anything you will. Yes. I'm like, jump, kick the moon and make it explode. They're like, well, well. I can't do that. I thought you have a free will. Well, free will within reason. Wait a minute. If your will is limited by reason, then it's not free. You know, if you have a free will, you could do anything you will to do. So will to jump kick Jupiter and destroy all the water benders out there by, or by destroying the moon or whatever it might be. I said Jupiter, but I meant the moon. Um, you know, do it, but you can't. And then I'm like, and by the way, did you will to be born? No. Did you will who your parents would be? Did you will what year you were going to be born? And did you will what society you were going to be born? Did you will all the stuff that's happening in the world that you live in right now? I'm like, so do you really have a free will? You have a will, but you don't have a free will, right? But everybody is baptized into Pelagius's way of thinking through the channel of John Locke and American classical liberalism. That's really, really what it is. And so that's why I wanted to say that old ideas come back with new names. Now, John Locke did bring us a lot of good things. I think social contract theory is, is better than tyranny, for sure. And the name John Locke became the character of one of my most famous, or became the name of one of my most favorite characters in the show Lost. If you've never seen the show Lost, you are missing out. But anyhow, best show ever. Anyhow. And even the ending is good. I know people watching this online are going to be like, that ending sucked. No, it didn't. Watch it again. And then read all the stuff on it. 
I once thought as you did. You're wrong. Anyhow, okay, I repented. So Pelagius insisted that, uh, that men enter into sin by free choice, just like Adam, and only then would they experience spiritual death. Augustine said, no, no, it doesn't work that way because you were conceived in sin, you're born with the sin nature, and you're children of wrath by nature. Yes, you choose the sin, but because you're a sinner by nature, your nature wants the sin. An example would be like, let's say I took a bowl of raw beef and a bowl of cabbage, and I put them both in front of a lion. I'm giving the lion a choice. I'm not putting a gun to the lion's head and saying, you better eat that meat. No, the lion is going to eat the meat because that lion's nature right now is carnivorous. It is not uh, an herbivore. And so it will always choose in accordance with its nature. Okay, it has a will. It makes a choice, but it's rejecting the good old cabbage for that raw red meat. And and it's the same thing with us. We're made in the image of God, so because of that, we have a conscience that could see both good and evil. But because our nature is a sin nature, like that lion, we want that red meat unless or until our nature gets changed. And so Augustine's point is God monergistically changes the nature and then then we could do the things that, that are good. And so, again, when you start comparing it to Scripture and statements like in Jeremiah, can the uh, leopard remove his spots? Then, then you who are accustomed to sin can do good. You know, uh, the heart is desperately wicked. Who could understand it? All those kind of passages, it's like, huh. And I know sometimes we hear that and we don't like it. You know, the interesting thing is the North Africans of Augustine's time all thought this way. Um, it was the Romans that would have a harder problem with this, the British, and that's why Pelagius came from there. And I could tell you that there's some cultures in this world that would hear Augustinianism and it would make instant sense to them. But because we live in America, which has Pelagianism 2.0 through John Locke, yeah, this sounds weird when we hear it. But when we consider our own experience and our own versions of the pear tree story, it's hard to argue against this. Not only does the scripture say it, but our, our experience supports it. So the scriptures support Augustine. Um, you know, when it comes to this, um, you know, he was only wrong about, the, about baptism. And so again, that's why the church favored Augustine. Now, there is going to be, um, there's going to be a, I wouldn't call it a correction because I still think Augustine was right. But there's going to be um, a position where they try to course correct Augustinianism. Much of the church is going to feel Augustine went too far. And they're going to try to come up. Like at the time, they all agreed with him. But a little later, after that council, they're going to try to, to course correct. And again, I don't think it's a real course correction. But we call this course correction, or the Catholics would call it a course correction. I don't think it's a course correction. But we call this whole idea semi-Pelagianism. See, after the victory over Pelagianism, there's going to be a small group of writers in southern France who are going to be like, you know what, we don't like this. this there's just something a little too far. And so, of course, they were immediately called semi-Pelagians, but it's probably better to call them semi-Augustinians because their belief's closer to Augustine than it is to Pelagius. But uh, we Reformed folk, 
we'll always try to call Arminians and Catholics semi-Pelagians because when you attach their name to Pelagius, it's like a kidney punch. But if we're if truth and advertisement, though, they are closer to Augustine than they are to Pelagius. Now, their leader was a famous theologian named John Cassian. He was one of the leading figures of uh, Western monasticism. And pretty much they're like, Augustine, you're right. The human race did fall in Adam. We are born with the sin nature. We cannot do good works or even, uh, we, we can't save ourselves apart from grace. But they said, here's where you go too far, Augustine. You're saying that we can't even believe on our own. You know, that, that the fall and that sin nature makes it to where, to where we can't believe. But we think you're wrong on that. We believe that humans, even though we're sinners, still have the ability to believe on our own. We could cry out for salvation. And when we do that, God will then respond with grace. And so what they're going to argue is that conversion is a joint effort, joint, um, you know, cooperation between divine and human will. So this is called synergism. Remember, Augustine's for monergism. There's one energy or one jism, you know, one who is working salvation, God, where synergism's like, no, it's, it's us with God. It's our inability, but we do have faith. And then based on our faith, God then comes and takes care of that, that inability. Now, the semi-Pelagians would say that, you know, we don't think Augustine's heretical, and Augustine would say, I don't think you're heretical. So they have a difference on monergism versus synergism, but they definitely both have a similar uh, anthropology. Now, what they're going to say is they're going to say, listen, the test of Catholic doctrine, meaning universal doctrine, because they're like the Council of Carthage signed off on Augustine to condemn Pelagius, and Pelagius should have been condemned, but should we accept everything Augustine said? They're like, no, because the test of universal or Catholic doctrine is it has to, you have to show that this was believed everywhere and by everyone throughout the history of the church. And we don't find predestination and election and monergism that Augustine's talking about. We don't find it until Augustine. He is the first one to articulate this. And so if this was true, then this should be something that we've seen from the beginning of the church to now. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't think their premise is right that you must be able to show it from the beginning of the church to now for it to be a true doctrine. But I will say they're right. Augustine's the first one to articulate this. When Christians try to find election, predestination, when we try to find reformed soteriology in the early church fathers, if you... When we cherry-pick verses that they write out of context to make that argument, you are making a dishonest argument. These guys were not. They were not monergists. You are not going to find that in the early church. Okay, And so just wanted to, to, to make, that, make that very clear. So Augustine is going to respond to them. And he's going to say, look, and he responds respectfully. They're not Pelagians, they're semi-Pelagians. He considers them brothers, not heretics. And he says, listen, most importantly is this was the view of Jesus and the apostles, and I could prove it with the scripture. And he's right, that ends the debate. If the church missed it, but you're able to show clearly this is what Jesus and the apostles taught, case closed. And I think Augustine did. But he has an explanation for why you don't find it before him. He says it was present, but undeveloped in Cyprian and Ambrose. They said things that showed they were on this track, but they didn't 
dive into it any deeper. Why? Because nobody ever brought up an issue that forced the church to deal with this. When nobody was talking about the Trinity, let's say, um, <clears throat> in the, the late first century, right? But by the time you get to the second century, now all of a sudden everything's about the nature of the three and one and the one and three, right? And so it was the controversies that forced them to define it. Augustine's saying it's the same thing. We were dealing with bigger matters with the Trinity. Nobody ever brought up anthropology. Nobody ever brought up what did the fall do to us until Plagius. And so that is why right now is the first time this is being articulated. It is forcing the church to finally and clearly think out the relationship between grace and human will. And we did think it out at the Council of Carthage, and we're right, right? Ian, when it comes to this, I think the semi-Plagians, I think John Cassian uh, was, was wrong on this. But the Eastern Church is going to instantly buy semi-Pelagianism, it will become their official doctrine. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they don't consider Augustine an important church father at all. They minimize him. Now, on the Catholic side, Augustine is seen as the biggest shot of big shots, right? Um, he just is. But the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, uh, Augustine's like, uh, they, they don't hardly even count him as a, as a saint because of this. Now, for a while, so the East has always rejected Augustine's understanding. In the West, they held to Augustine's for a while, okay? They held to it for a while. But eventually, you give it even not much more than a century, even in the West, they become semi-Pelagians. Now, what I will say, though, is, and we're going to talk about this in a future lesson, but you're going to have, um, you're going to have orders, of monks that come up. You may have heard of Dominicans, Franciscans, especially if you have a Catholic background, you've heard of them. Like, who's Opus Dei? They're secret assassins for the Pope. You know, don't, don't go too crazy with that stuff, right? But you're going to have some famous monks like St. Francis, and a lot of people want to copy him, so they're going to be called Franciscans. You're going to have another famous saint, St. Dominic. People are going to want to copy him, so they're going to be called Dominicans. Well, there's going to be an order of Augustinians. And the Augustinians are going to hold to Augustine's monergism. The, and it's accepted. It's okay. The popes don't care. They're fine with Augustinianism. But the majority of the Western church at that time will become semi-Pelagian. Martin Luther, before he started the Protestant Reformation, was a priest in the Augustinian order. And Martin Luther was a monergist and made some of the same arguments Augustine makes, he will make them against Erasmus. So this stuff comes back a thousand years later. And obviously Martin Luther gets his position from the scripture, but I also think he inherited a lot of it from just being an Augustinian, you know, and he was able to see that stuff in the scripture. So important, important stuff there, right? Um, now, the one thing I'll end with, and then we'll We'll close. I'm not going to get to the next controversy, the icon, iconoclasm, um, the iconoclastic controversy, because we're just out of time. But the last bullet I'll say is because Augustine believed that grace was only channeled through the church, through the sacraments, anybody outside of the church cannot be saved. And that's why even though a thousand years later, Martin Luther, or 1100 years later, Martin Luther will be an Augustinian making a lot of the same arguments once he's excommunicated from the church and he's doing all these things outside of the church, the very Augustine who he's championing his soteriology, that Augustine would have said Martin Luther can't be saved. 
You know, so it's just it's just interesting. That's why I love history. Um, that's why I like talking about this stuff. I know it's you know the a field of nerds, but uh, but this is some fun nerdiness to me. Um, and I know you'll be thinking, yeah, but you nerd out on Star Wars lore, and that's not even real. That is true. And don't forget Lord of the Rings. But but the point is, this is this is good stuff. I, you know, I think it's important stuff to uh, to study and to to know about. Again, Augustine is a complicated figure. His view on sacramentalism really builds the medieval Catholic Church. That's still Roman Catholicism today. But his views on salvation open the door for Martin Luther, John Calvin, the whole Reformed tradition, and that's just as much. Augustinian is the Catholic Church. It's almost like you have to split them in two. Um, so that's all I got. Um, I think you could tell that the fifth century gave us some pretty important uh, figures with Chrysostom, with Jerome, and with Augustine. And I hope you could see how I had to give a whole lesson to Augustine, why he was probably chief of even those three.